Hello and welcome to Down with the Patriarchy. I'm Ben Richards. And I'm Elia Jo. He's as white and male as they come. And she, well, she isn't. But together, we're hoping to explore those composers that we don't know so well. That's right. Today, we're not really exploring a composer, but we're absolutely delighted to have our first guest on Woo! Down with the Patriarchy. And probably, I would say, our most spirited and enthusiastic follower. <laughs> absolutely, he's our number one fan. <laughs> yeah, we are absolutely delighted today to be joined by none other than Dr Dan Elphick. Dan is a musicologist and a teaching fellow at Royal Holloway, so no prizes for guessing how we all happen to know him. <laughs> Dan fo- focuses on Russian and Eastern European music, as well as music analysis and different musicological strains of thought uh, trains of thought, strains of thought, trains of thought. <laughs> and we're absolutely delighted to have him on the podcast today. So welcome, Dan. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you for being with us on this drizzly morning. It's fine. Thank you for asking me on. It's a pleasure to be here. So on today's episode, uh, rather than looking at a specific composer, we're going to have a look at the issues surrounding the canon itself, how we got to the canon as it is today, and the ideas that fed into the canon. So we're basically here to, well fire no pun intended a load of questions at dan uh, to get his thoughts on the matter so ellie do you want to go first yeah so i i suppose i don't actually think we've tackled this in this podcast we came in all guns blazing with our first episode but i don't think we've ever really talked about what the canon is so dan perhaps you could just give us a brief explanation about what the canon is hmm. and how we got there yeah it's a great question a really hard question actually to start with in a very simple sense, the canon is what we call a group of pieces of music, or sometimes composers, that we use to teach classical music. So teaching key concepts or ideas or the history of classical music. So general music courses or guides to music very often will deal with the same names and the same pieces of music. There's lots and lots of implications that come from that, but in a nutshell, that's what it is. It's a little bit different to what's sometimes called the repertoire as well, which are the pieces regularly played by orchestras or ensembles as well. There's a slight difference between them, but there's interesting overlap as well. It makes a lot of sense. A list of composers that we would come back to for teaching. It means that teachers can share resources. It means that students who go between different institutions from schools to universities, say, or to postgraduate courses, they can all share in a sort of assumed level of knowledge. Um, that's the pros of it. There are many more cons of it, though, or rather sort of implications that, that arise from it. And I suppose I should have the caveat that I'm not against the music that is included in this group. Sometimes we have to have th- this caveat that we, I don't, we don't want people to stop playing Mozart or Beethoven or Brahms. This is still wonderful music, but there are questions that arise from it. And things like, is this music objectively the music that everybody should know? And hopefully, I hope the answer quickly becomes, well, there's no reason why it should be. It's still very good, but there's plenty else out there, as we've already discovered with the first two episodes of this podcast. Thank you very much for that. I think that's that's a very good explanation that I think we probably should have started the podcast with. Um, so <laughs> yeah. just a secondary question to that. When and where did it get formed? Oh, so for that, I suppose I'm going to offer a few responses. So it gets formed when we start to trace the actual teaching of music history as a subject. 
So that sort of separates beforehand with teaching of composition and primarily the teaching of music was the teaching of music theory and music composition. We didn't necessarily have a history of teaching music history. <laughs> and we trace it into the 19th century. So musicology, the German version, uh, Musikwissenschaft, it's sort of founded around the mid 19th century. And that very much at a time was thinking about sort of histories of philosophies of music as gathering interest in lots of ideas that we now understand as sort of romantic philosophy. So the importance of the individual, for instance. So the morphing from teaching music composition with sort of set models that are good examples for composition, then changing slowly into music history as a series of pieces or composers that learners ought to know, then also reflected romantic philosophy at the same time. So roughly we can say it's formed around the, the middle of the 19th century, perhaps a little bit earlier than that. I should add as well that at no point is it really written down in a very simple sense, this is who is in the canon and this is who is not. I think there are certainly names that lots of people can agree. And once I sort of, as a, as a sort of experiment, I had a go at writing it down. Um, I got to at least about 20 names. And then I thought what we could reasonably expand it with, we got to about 50. And then I got to about 100 eventually. <laughs> It sounds a bit like when you're trying to um, try to narrow down the guests for your wedding and you can't decide which of your estranged cousins you should invite. <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah, it's, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Yeah, we, don't, we don't actually have it written down. No one has definitively gone like, this is what it is. But I think because of collective music teaching, we sort of generally have an idea of what it is. And I think perhaps one of the things that ties into it is this, is what you've spoken about, about a lot about the genius concept and the deification of these composers. Mm. And what harm do you think that it does to, well, I mean, any composer, that any new composer, for one thing, but equally any composer that exists in the same era as your Beethovens and Schubert's, etc. When you deify one above all other considerations, and then as a consequence of that, you're always comparing whenever you look at a new composer and you go, right, is this person worth my time? There's this almost subconscious comparison between what we would decide is a sort of acceptable standard of composition mm. from these great composers. And so do, do you think that there's beyond perhaps uses of the canon a, as a teaching tool that is quite harmful when we're trying to find new people to be interested in and to inspire other people to listen mm. to? You're asking such good questions. <laughs> I love that you mentioned Beethoven and Schubert, for instance, I suppose from the from the beginning of the 19th century. Mm. Two composers writing in very similar circles, but they're very, very different music. Yeah. And actually, just to go with those two, lots of the early criticism leveled at Schubert was that he wasn't Beethoven enough, yeah. <laughs> which is really yeah. interesting in and of itself, that you'd yeah. compare people to then Schubert or Beethoven. But actually, between them, they have this really unpleasant sort of rivalry in criticism. There's a gendered rivalry as well, um, in that Schubert is often praised for his lyrical expression. And for some critics, this was overly feminine compared to yeah. what was generalized as Beethoven's masculine. So Schubert was criticized for that, obviously unfairly, and obviously in terms of misogyny as well. I mean, the wider question, I suppose, is, yeah, the, the damage that can be done through comparison. So I th if I think of composers, composers writing at the same time, so somebody like Gluck, for instance, focusing with Schubert, actually, the comparison is more frequently made. Gluck was extraordinarily popular in his time, a very successful composer. And it's actually only after both of them had died, and probably the people who first wrote about them died, that then there was this sort of reappraisal. 
And yeah, the genius concept can be overly damaging in that it provides the sort of watermark, the, the point that other composers then need to be measured against, if that makes sense, rather than an original contribution and what is, you know, uniquely their thing to say in music, it can then be said, well, just how just how Beethoven is it? Sorry, I was just going to say that I think we're really guilty of that even. I mean, in, in our first episode of the podcast, we spent a good portion of time talking about how we can compare Florence Price's music to that of Dvorak mm. and Copeland. I think I caught myself doing it a few times during the podcast, but I didn't really change mm. what I was doing. Mm. If we're holding this benchmark of canonic, traditionally white male music, and then we're saying, does she kind of meet mm. it? Then it's like, I don't know. That's It's just really yeah. interesting. I hadn't, think about. I hadn't flagged that. that in your first podcast. But I, now that you say it, I suppose you do. There's not anything wrong with that, though. Again, coming back to the way that we mm. sort of think about music, we obviously very naturally compare new things to what we already know. And that, and that makes sense. It's just what we do next, isn't it? It's what we then say, okay, what is uniquely Price's thing, for instance? Or yeah. I think it's also interesting. I think I think as well we, we we need to remember that you can you can still love Beethoven, but you can also love another composer. It doesn't affect your love of that person, uh, other oh, sure. composer's music. And I think I think sometimes you know it's easy to get to think, well, if I if I like this other music, then that that taints somehow my my adoration of of this other person. But that's that's not necessarily the case. And yes, yeah, so, you know you do have to be quite flexible of mind in a way to perhaps appreciate. Yeah. The, the stuff coming out that's in new. a very simple sense i think there's just no rules for for enjoying music really no actually that was what i was <laughs> going to ask you you you're talking about uh, the sort of femininity of schubert and criticism when we were looking at taifair last week and what, what struck me was the parallels between critics mm. talking about her music and innate simplicity in, in some in some cases and how that was quite a similar yes. take to what they said about Pulag, but it's taken longer for Taifair's music to become more widely accepted because there are certain gendered issues in terms of the music criticism. And I was sort of thinking, for me, when I was doing my dissertation on Pulag, I was just thinking, well, I really like <laughs> this music. This, this, I can't understand why that is not in and of itself you know enough reason and certainly it's it's more than enough of a reason for the vast majority of the pop you know of people who listen to whatever genre of music is their thing they don't sit there most people don't sit there and, and critique music in perhaps the way that we do and perhaps they don't get so hung up on it and they just enjoy it and i i wonder whether or not there's a way what you feel about that and how when we're negotiating all these sort of big ideas and, and we are analyzing music and, and as a result therefore we are forming opinions and thoughts on them that we can actually just also find the, the way to enjoy music and not feel you know guilty for enjoying hmm. music that might not necessarily be as challenging you know intellectually stimulating as perhaps other music might be even if it you know and that, and that obviously is also a quite subjective concept as well yeah what is challenging for somebody for one person can be very different for somebody else and that's important to remember as well if somebody would say oh, i find stravinsky's firebird very challenging to listen to you know that's legitimate for somebody yeah. to say yeah i think we, we have to pause and think that we're actually very lucky to be in a position to either study or to think and write about music very often professionally as well it's very very lucky you know <laughs> Quite speaking personally, music is my main hobby and it's also my line of work. Yeah. And I do yeah. spend a lot of time thinking, as, as, as I'm sure we all do, we spend a lot of time thinking about music very, very critically, uh, trying to be as sophisticated as possible. And, you know, <laughs> trying, the operative word. <laughs> and we do have to sort of switch off and remind ourselves that actually we can just as legitimately listen for pleasure and we can 
think very seriously about some pieces and then hopefully disconnect and go back to listening to them. So my example would just be, I was very happy to review a, a new CD that came out at the start of this month, which was a CD of Weinberg Quartet. Weinberg's a Russian composer I did my, my PhD and my first book on. And uh, the PhD focused just on these, these quartets. There are 17 of them. So I went into a lot of detail over four years, very in-depth. And actually listening to them again on this new, fresh recording, I thought, actually, just how much I, I enjoy it. Thinking about things in a sophisticated way doesn't take that away at any point. doesn't stop you feeling sophisticated. And we just should remind ourselves of that, especially discovering new music. Listening to something, we get that sort of very fresh feeling of something sticking in the mind or enjoying a particular phrase. And I think it's different for every person as well. The stuff that I listen out for is really unexpected harmony. Is what I love hearing in new pieces that I've never heard before. But I can't really explain why. It's just what I particularly enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, and for me, it's it's little bits of kind of mm. light motif and stuff that I absolutely love. And no, I I think I think that's really true. It's really important to kind of detach our analytical brains from our mm. there's my word smithness coming out no i think we have to detach our love of analyzing music from our love of listening for pleasure when we kind of godify these composers like beethoven and like mozart and we put them on this plane far higher than anything that we could possibly compose of ourselves what do you think we can do to kind of (laughs) humanize them it's it's not that we don't think they should be on this kind of god tier that we've put them on, but how can we just say it's music? How can we detach it from our analytical brains? Um, that's a really great question. Sorry, that, that I paused to sigh, and it's not because it's because it's a lot to think about. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I suppose I've got a few bits of that, and, and in a way, it's how do we humanise a composer, but not yeah. to be obsessed with them either. In a way, Beethoven is, mm. is perhaps easier than Mozart in some ways, but I've got. I've got a response on both of them. There are two bits on Beethoven. So obviously there are lots and lots of pieces by Beethoven that are in very, very high reputation. And they are they are great. They're, they're wonderful pieces of music. But there are also some not so good ones. <laughs> and, that's, yeah. and that's not to be harsh. Yeah, that's in just the same way that there's a very broad critical consensus that some of Beethoven's pieces are very, very good. There is also the, the opposite. Something like uh, the Schlag Symphony, the Beethoven or um, Wellington's Victory, you know, I yeah. encourage you to go and listen to that. And it's just a sort of pot boiler and a bit a bit crude. Yeah. And the flip side is also, <laughs> in a very simple way, you can look at um, Beethoven's sketchbooks and the way that um, there, we could be forgiven for thinking that these wonderful, almost overwhelming pieces of music, the overwhelming is, how, how, could, how could somebody write something like this? You know, I couldn't possibly aspire to do that because this is so great. If you look at mm-hmm. Beethoven's sketchbooks, you realise there's a phenomenal amount of work goes into it. And for me, that's sort of humbling. It's it's not this sort of superhuman, godified talent, which is perhaps mm. one part of it, the, the ability to do it, but also a lot of hard work, just very, very simply. And very carefully, meticulously going over phrases, working it out, editing, rewriting, and eventually reaching a product, I, I would say. And product is, is a word chosen on purpose as well, but it's for money. Yeah, I, yeah one of my true. least favorite myths is that composers always write from inspiration when actually lots of times they just needed to get paid. And that was 
That's how I'd respond to Mozart. If you look at Mozart's letters trying to chase up money owed to him, as Beethoven as well, you see that it's, you know, they're in the business of composing and that includes being paid. Mm, yeah, that, that's very true. In my, I say free time in inverted commas because I don't have very much at the moment, but I spend oh. my free time painting and I usually paint for commissions. And I don't know when I last painted something because I felt like sitting down and just doing it. And I'm constantly mm. painting now to get paid. And it's not that the inspiration and the love and passion isn't there, but that's not why I'm always doing it. And I, I forget that with yeah. music. I think that was one of the things I was thinking about with about Beethoven. I think, Dan, there was a really good thread that you put up on Twitter about geniuses and about how we should be careful not to oversimplify things because I think it disencourages people in the present from thinking that they can ever achieve something. You know, when we think about a Beethoven symphony, if we think of them as geniuses, then we, we deny ourselves the opportunity to think that we could dare to be that creative. And actually, I think you don't want to start being consciously negative about composers who for a very long time we've been consciously positive about but it is important to try and be consciously balanced and to always appreciate that you know call this great piece of music a great piece of music but also remember what yeah. went into it i mean uh, there's a there's a story about i think gershwin that in the morning he would get up and write three or four songs to quote that <laughs> ones out of my system um so there's a sense that there is a process isn't there that everybody any artist in any field goes through but of course, it's tricky, isn't it? Because when you read, I don't know, the Groves Dictionary Music or a Britannica article on somebody, there's only so much you can distill. And so perhaps the perception in the general sphere is that, you know, oh, Beethoven's a great composer, full stop. But actually, when you when you are doing what we're doing, you realise that it's more nuanced than that. By what we're doing, I mm. mean at university, because I think that that gives you, you know, I didn't know anything about Wellington League <laughs> and all that stuff if I hadn't done late Beethoven with Julian at Holloway. And you start to appreciate by looking at his music in more detail, you start going, hang on, what the hell is he doing there? That's an interesting angle he's taken there. And, and you start to you start to think, hmm, actually, this person who we look at in this way is much more complex and therefore much more, I find, much more enjoyable to talk about and think about because he's imperfect. I think I can really relate to that as well, actually. It's not that I've always had a dislike for Mozart. I think that's a bit harsh. But I just have never kind of understood why we've put him on this <laughs> god tier. And before I came to Holloway, I got this scholarship thing from school and I took myself off to Vienna <laughs> on a little trip to do lots of music research before I came. And it wasn't until then that I found oh, yeah. the Dissonance Quartet. I was listening and I just thought, why isn't more of his music like this? Because I think it shows a completely different side to them that previously we've just completely ignored. And I know personally, it made me humanise him a lot more, thinking that not everything that he's done follows this strict, rigid routine that a lot of his other music does. And I think humanising them just transforms your opinion of a lot of certain composers, Yeah, um... I think. I think it's quite encouraging in a way. I think it's actually a really positive message because we have to be wary when we say these things. It can sound negative or something like that. And I think actually really nice positives mm. come out of it. The yeah, products definitely. of people's intense hard work, sometimes in many cases a life's work or training, and then it's achievable in some ways. That might be crude <laughs> and it could be sort of cringeworthy, but that's my sort of take on it. I frequently rant about genius just because I think it's lazy thinking. It sounds harsh if you come back yeah. to Beethoven all the time, but and it's not really Beethoven's fault. It's more the, the product of people who came after him, especially critics who quickly said that this is the best that there is in music. 
And for example, Beethoven's late works, mm. and especially the final few quartets, are very rewarding mm. to listen to lots of different times because there's complex things going on and also stuff that's just really weird, frankly. Yeah. But after his death, then they would perform more frequently and a few people then started to pick apart what was weird about them and to write in ways that would expand these ideas. And if you look backwards on that in music history, you can then put out the case Beethoven is a genius and ahead of his time rather than everybody thought these were interesting mm. ideas and took them yeah. somewhere else. And it's, it's the sort of wrong perspective. I really love the Mozart example, Ellie, because I'll put it out there, I'm not Mozart's biggest fan. <laughs> I, love, <laughs> I love playing the, sonata, the piano alone. sonatas, uh, and I especially love the Requiem, and I suppose some yes. of the operas, but I, yeah. I guess I've never just got it. I haven't found that a problem, and I guess there's a sort of, I, I used to sort of moan about it, but I just didn't, never got it. And now I just think, well, I, I suppose I'll just carefully listen around and think about it a bit more. And I think that's okay as well. It's okay to not get bits of the canon. I think some... I sometimes more I'm more worried that listeners can be concerned about this. If you don't like something in the canon, you could reflect that oh, there's something wrong with my interests or my interest in classical music because I must just not get mm. classical music if I don't get the canon. And I think it can put people off, which worries me. Yeah, I think definitely. My mum also shared my kind of not. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to be careful using the word dislike as well. Don't put employers <laughs> off, but my kind of opinions about Mozart she she shared them with me and when she came to Vienna with me and she said that she she kind of was starting to understand it a bit more and now I don't <laughs> think she's ever listened to so much classical music um, it seems like all of her radio station options in the car are some form of Scala or yeah. Radio 3 or Classic FM all of them are on there and I, I love that I think it's really it's just changed how she views it so when we're talking about the canon and we're talking about other composers, are we resigned to accept the fact that the canon is like is like turning around an oil tanker in the sense that it, it has quite a lot of history involved in terms of its setup? And so, it's, are we supposed to sort of accept it for what it is and and then still try and expose other composers? I mean, the thing is, you know, how how do you start to then do the application <laughs> process for a new composer to the canon? You know. How do you think we should go about it as people interested in music, as people who are doing music all the time? You know, is there a way that you think that we can best, beyond obviously listening to Dan <laughs> Petri Bach every week, um, you know, <laughs> um, how do we kind of get ourselves around this, the, the canon mm. and find our way to understand? I mean, there's, there's ethical questions for me. We sort of skirted around it, but to put it bluntly, the canon reflects the values of the people who are writing those music histories in that they were just about all European, yeah. white and male. And the people that they, they praised looked mm. like yeah. themselves and shared their similar values. And, and we have to think about that in the 21st century. Obviously, the people interested in classical music is everybody across society. There's no exclusivity to classical music. And it's a cliche by now, but it is for everyone, pretty much just as every other kind of music is. Mm. So the question is, what do we do with that? And the flip side, like I've been saying, that there are still pros to the canon. So in the time I've been teaching, I've sort of changed position a little bit, not to backtrack, but for example, the canon has all sorts of problems. It's not reflective of modern day society. But the flip side as well is that there is a value, at least in, in this music as well. There's a practical side. If I decided to ignore it and never mention it, never mention any of these pieces, and then my students wanted to go into the wide world of being a professional musician, employers might be a little bit surprised if they didn't know any Brahms symphonies. Or couldn't say it, couldn't, yeah. So there's a practical side, but also yeah. there's an ethical side in that many people 
over hundreds of years have found joy in this music. And, and I don't want to deny anyone that either. The flip side of that, though, is the, the ethical that I think we should expand it in some ways, or it's what we do with it. So it's the middle route. I like the oil tanker um, method. The short, I mean, you're, <laughs> it's centering on the idea that it requires a lot of effort, quite frankly. So I think the reason we, we sort of still have the canon and it will arguably still be here in 50 years, whether we like it or not, it's because it's easy to teach, very, very frankly. Yeah. Yeah. And I've said elsewhere that to expand it requires a lot of effort and probably a lot of time as well. So if I'm teaching a 10-week course on the history of music, which has happened at Royal Holloway, that's a tall order. That's a tough ask. Yes. The reason we have a course like that yeah. is because students come from all sorts of different educational backgrounds, and we want to make sure that they start from a similar foundation, for instance. But if I wanted to teach a more broader music history course, I'd double the amount and I talk about lots more composers, very, very frankly. And then the question is what resources are out there on those composers? And as I'm I'm sure you've both discovered with Price or Typhair, (laughs) that it's it becomes much more intricate and involved in finding your resources to talk about. Whereas we sort of take it for granted to talk about um, Bach or Haydn, for instance. And and also for those resources to not just be to be academic resources and not just sort of you know blog articles, which which might be useful for for an in, in, interesting introduction, but for actual you know academic study on on a particular composer, you know, trying to find that sort of detailed work on a composer that might not be so well known is quite yeah. Quite I mean, in my view, it's actually. almost beyond what is realistic to expect from say a school teacher or even most sort of university instructors. So it's hard in a way. Mm. It requires I don't know. It would require somebody to to kind of write it down. And then all you have then is a new canon. And that might be positive because mm. it might include yeah. black or minority ethnic composers, female composers, composers from the global south. But there's also, you know, you're just forming a new list. It makes me think of recent news. The UK A-level board had dropped its only black composer and also its only jazz composer after all the pressure that they'd mm. recently been under. And they thought they, it was just a realistic thing. And I think they've backed down now. Yeah, but that was really shocking. I hope so. <laughs> Personal. <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, there's one space. Just yeah. you know, all you have to do is That's leave it there. Sorry, go on. I'm going back to my GCSE, not my GCSE, my A-level. And I don't think on, on our list we had a single black or female composer. We did Mozart opera. We did Baroque concerto so we did some Bach and Vivaldi yeah. and then mm. we did theatre music and that was all Sondheim and Jason Robert Brown and that I had not thought No about. I don't think I had a single female well, composer on my level. That's not to fault the people that taught me. It's again it's it's enormous no. work. No, no, not I think what I said before is the simplest step we can do is well to start a podcast and to discuss it is a lot of work so bravo to you two. A simple step, though, that musicians can do, <laughs> whether you're a performer, somebody involved in, you know, in the professional sense of organising concerts, or if you're somebody who's writing about music or teaching about music, is to kind of find your people in the sense of find the composers who you think have immense value and you want to share and to shout their name from the rooftops. And that's a small contribution yeah. mm-hmm. and a realistic one as well. I have to agree wholeheartedly with that. And I, I personally, I think that what I've loved from being in the choir at Royal Holloway is that I never feel like we are 
flag bearers for the conventional and i always i love the fact that when i first came to an open date roll holloway i was like what is all this baltic music i don't i don't understand all this baltic music <laughs> and now it's like it's the most amazing group of composers who have churned out this music a lot of it as a direct result of their yeah. you know they've, they've finally been allowed to to write what they want in the last 30 years and it's it's absolutely inspiring but also when we did the project in france with the villette music and music like that that hasn't been heard before and obviously you, you don't have the, the ethical implications of Villette is a man and he is white but then at the same time his music isn't very well known you don't necessarily have to go on a on an ethical crusade but actually just open your mind to the possibilities beyond what your education necessitates that you need to learn because you need to have this sort of bank of information but I think as performers and I think across the border or Holloway Rebecca's really good at this with the orchestra um, and with all with all the other ensembles, I think there is a really good concerted effort to to look at and explore new music and different music. And I mean, heck, yeah. we've got an entire you know new music collective um, with Nathan. Not to sorry, this has now become a bit of a band, but for all. Come to Royal Holloway. <laughs> Come to Royal Holloway. But I imagine it's much the same in 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 other institutions across the UK as well. They are looking for the new and exploring the new. And if they're not, then I you know I think they're missing out really. A good friend of mine from school is at Oxford in his final year, and he's just compiled a database of oh, wow. every female composer going back to 1700. Uh, every every single <laughs> one, and he sent me that and said, you might want this. <laughs> it was very useful. I think for somewhere like Oxford, that's kind of as traditionalist as we think it is, I think we forget that everyone is doing yeah. that bit. I think the, the big concerns about canon are, because we're talking about sort of very advanced study and learning, you know, at university level. And some of the more negative aspects of canon can be felt more immediately before or around it. So many, many people, well, we know that there's declining levels of getting onto GCSE and then A-level of music, for instance. But many, many people still enjoy listening to things like classical music and just sort of casually enjoying. And that's not, a, that's not to talk it down. That's not to make that a negative word, just to enjoy classical music. That There isn't a sort of strong impetus to listen very much further. I, I often talk about Classic FM as an example of a station that, to me, is a really good entry point classical music. They're sometimes criticised, a little bit unfairly, yes. that they rotate a, a sort of a playlist-ish of pieces. Yeah. Oh, that Hall of Fame. I think we've chatted about that here. That Hall of Fame, though, is, in a, is a little bit different to the canon, actually. There's some unusual pieces in there that wouldn't be in the way we teach classical music very traditionally. But mm. then there is a value that hopefully listeners will have interest sparked and then might go to other stations. So Scala and Radio 3 are both very good at extremely new things and really odd, weird things in the case of uh, Radio 3. Definitely. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's, I, I often find myself tuning into Radio 3 and going, what on earth is this? Am I on Radio 3? Yeah, but I think that's great fun as well. I am. I, I so this isn't a plug, but I, I've been lucky enough to do a few bits on Radio 3. And I gave a talk about music that was played on stones. So it's literally Stone Age music. And I talk, talked about these instruments. And I think it's only Radio 3 that would Whoa. give a chance to play some of the recordings just after they've had um, breakfast on three and things like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> to have oh, a... no, it's it, plug away, by the way. <laughs> this, this, is, this is the place. <laughs> but to have that, on, have that on a national radio station that's not in the depths of DA. Yeah, exactly. BBC Radio 3, it's on, it's on 93 FM, yeah, everyone can listen to it. But I think, actually, this is a really good analogy, I think, sort of forming our thoughts for this podcast today about the Hall of Fame. And I think 
when you're viewing the Hall of Fame and you view it as your springboard into this world, I think yeah. in the same way we should treat the canon as such and you know, <laughs> see it as our... For, for of, the ascent of Everest. Um, <laughs> you know, for the ascent of Everest. <laughs> <that> is, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but, and it does sometimes feel like that. I think, yeah, I think we were right. It, it does have its uses, but I think it's all. Yeah. It's also important to go right. This yeah. is what we know. Now let's see what we can. I think it's important get. to we'll absolutely, like you say, Ben, but also um, to be aware of the myths that go with it, or the potential traps. Like we could potentially think this is objectively the best music, when of course there's there's no way of actually knowing that. Yeah. For instance. Mm. Yeah. And we should, and we shouldn't be afraid to be like, you can listen to yeah. Beethoven's Fifth Symphony and yeah. not like it. It's okay to not like it, you know. And and actually, sometimes you, you you know, it doesn't just just because you don't like it doesn't make you a bad musician because you're not liking something that somebody has perceived to be of you know artistic worth. Because ultimately, no one is right on this. Whilst there is collective opinion on on lots of different things, it doesn't necessarily make it. A, yeah, a fact I suppose it makes us that it's good. think very critically of what we mean when we say something's good. <laughs> but because not to be like sort of big Lebowski and mm. oh, it's just your opinion, yeah. man. But 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 in a really simple sense, it's um, yeah. You know, I enjoy this and I like it, and we can say sophisticated things. And if lots of people say that, then you know that's interesting in and of itself. And it requires a bit of subtraction of ego in some ways. If I think this is good, that doesn't mean it's good for everyone. Mm. So I shouldn't be offended if somebody says they don't like Shostakovich. Plenty of people don't like Shostakovich, and I. And I don't worry about that. Oh, that makes <laughs> um, me I sad. can sort of, if I wanted to, I could try and persuade them, but I don't think that's like my mission. And similarly, music that I might think is not very good no. yeah. is not objectively bad. I just don't enjoy it. And all of that's sort of perfectly acceptable. Yeah. And I don't think there's really many people actually saying these things. <laughs> this is the best. The music you, listen, you like is rubbish. I don't think there's many people actually saying these things outright. It's just that there's an implication. So the unspoken truth, isn't it, in, in a way? It's almost like it's not something that anybody ever says, but it's weird that we feel like it's something that... Yeah, exactly. We just can't And um, I think case. at higher education um, level, you know, we're, we're all about thinking more deeply, critically examining things and trying to go back to what we assume about stuff and then questioning a little bit about, well, why is that? And I guess my hope for, for teaching it mm. and do a podcast on issues like this is more that hopefully it can bring people though because it's not this sort of sealed club with rules it's actually yeah. just very easy going and like any other music <laughs> absolutely i think that's a really good point to finish on i, I think come come to royal holloway uh, no uh, that's that's not why we're here um, <laughs> thank you thank no, this you. is oh we can send this <laughs> say you put this out as a, as a new 50 minute advert for royal holloway Oh, thank you. Um, thank you so much, Dan, for joining us and for letting us question you. <laughs> it's great. I really enjoy things. the podcast and I look forward so much to what you're, you're doing next. <laughs> thank you. We, we, um, we actually don't have any idea what we're doing next. But you're, actually, because you, you, you're doing a project at the moment. On I'm sure, yeah. A female Polish composer, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so um, she's called Grashina Batsevich. I can't remember her name. I think we might have a look at her at some point. Yeah, I, that's funny. I was going to say how, because normally we would wrap it up by swiping left or swiping right, but we can't really do that. <laughs> real life. Hard swipe left. So um, <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> I was just going to ask, um, would you, it, is there a composer who is female or LGBTQ or BAME? There are so many 
acronyms um that you would wow. recommend um, we all go and listen to um, so yeah right now i'm working quite in depth on grazina batsevich she's a polish composer uh, from the middle of the 20th century uh, and in her own right was considered one of the very leading polish composers it wasn't considered a remarkable thing that she was a woman uh, she was just talked about with that much respect and since her death uh, I think she's fallen a little bit out of the, the popular loop. I'd also recommend uh, a really interesting contrast to that would be Galina Ustvolskaya, who's a Russian female composer, who it's interesting that we talked about receptions and views of femininity because Ustvolskaya's music is overwhelmingly aggressive and loud and critics viewed her music as oh. being masculine. <laughs> and sometimes it was set with the, the composer who wrote like a man, for instance. So her music's worth worth looking at. Sometimes it's written at sort of four oh, fortes wow. all the way through uh, and things like that, but it's very aggressive. That's but I, my I love kind it. Of music. <laughs> <laughs> thank you both so much. Amazing. Thank you so much, Dan. That's great. Okay. Thank you. Uh, oh, enjoy thank the rest you of your day. All right. Take care. Bye bye. You too. You too. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> bye. <laughs>